Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello there, this is Jordana Levine. Welcome to this week's episode of Talk Wordy to Me. I hope you enjoyed last week's debut with Christian White and Friday's bonus episode recommending my three top suspense reads this year. Today, I'm talking wordy with Australian writer, broadcaster and feminist Clementine Ford. I have a confession before we begin. I was terrified to do this interview. My experience of Clementine has only been through social media and she is very passionate about many things. It's something I admire about her, but she can also be very polarizing And I, admittedly, choose to leave myself out of most online conversations, not because I'm a pushover, but I'm just more of an observant bystander. And I wasn't really sure, I guess, who I would be chatting to when this interview was scheduled. But after reading her new book, How We Love, which is what we're going to be talking about today, I was introduced to a very earnest, very vulnerable, warm and personable woman. And while Clementine's writing is so beautiful, so, so juicy, and it really, really resonated with me, as I'm sure it will with you too. How We Love is Clementine's first tell-all memoir, and it explores love in its many forms. With clear eyes and an open heart, she writes about losing her adored mother far too young, about the pain and confusion of first love, both platonic and romantic, and the joy and heartache of adult love. She writes movingly about the transcendent and transformative journey to motherhood and the similarly monumental path to self-love. I kick off by asking Clementine about people's assumptions of who she is before they've gotten to know her properly, because as I mentioned before, I myself was apprehensive about who I was sitting down with, and I turned out to be very pleasantly surprised. Enjoy this interview with Clementine Ford. It's revealing how people have an idea of you in their head as a character, and sometimes the way that they talk to you is as if they think that you're the one who's who's made the character and not them. Yes. And that that's really interesting, isn't it? Because when I decided to do this interview with you, and this is what happens when you have a book podcast, right? You get sent a bunch of books and you get a bunch of book publicists tell you why this book's really important to talk about. Mm-hmm. And understandably, the way your book was sold to me was this is a different side of Clementine Ford. Yeah. I mean, look, that's, and that's something that we talked about, you know, and I'm aware that people will think that it's a different side to me, um, which of course it is. But at the same time, you know, I've written about these kinds of things my whole career and I've, and I haven't hidden that writing. It's not like I've done it for niche publications. I've done it for exactly the same publications that I've done my more feminist writing for. And it is the way to sell the book, I guess, but it's just, yeah. And like I said, I'm not complaining about it. It's just very interesting how characters are created. And it is, it's, it's our perception as the reader or the viewer or the voyeur on social media. Really, yeah. 
And I think, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Do you think that social media is what has created this character for you, that people think they they know who you are by what they're seeing through socials? I think that that's partly true. I mean, we all play a character on social media yeah. and, and just in the world generally, we all play a version of ourselves dependent on which environments we're in. And certainly I have been instrumental on different platforms, I guess, presenting a character like back when I used to tweet and I... I really don't use Twitter anymore, although I did log on last night because I've been checking out what people are saying about the book because, you know, you want to keep. Yeah, you want to know. What, yeah, you want to know what people are thinking. And I was like, oh, do I get sucked back in? This is the bad place. So I think on Twitter, <laughs> on Twitter, I like definitely cultivated. I mean, I was instrumental in cultivating a persona and a character and everyone does on Twitter. But I realized sometime around probably about 10 years after I started using Twitter, I realized this place is not healthy for me to be on. It's really bad for the soul. It leads me to make bad choices. And it's too easy to kind of reach for the um, what you think is a snappy joke or what you think is kind of a, a really like clever quip to comment on a very serious issue that often can just either completely backfire, as has been my experience, or can just really like undermine the seriousness of something. Absolutely. And Twitter, I mean, I've never, ever been on Twitter, I have to oh, say. So good I'm, for you. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a mental health choice right from the beginning. Um, and I will never even go on there just to read stuff. But from what I can understand, and the reason I don't love it, is there's really not room to have a proper conversation, right? It's just a back and forth of characters until someone gets tired. Yeah, well, I mean, you can have, I suppose there are different enclaves on Twitter. You know, there's book Twitter where people can have really nice conversations. Healthy about conversations, books. yeah. Yeah, although even book Twitter has its own dramas. I mean, for me, and I said this to someone recently, one of the things that kind of sums up social media, but also the constant truisms of humanity, regardless of what medium we have to speak to each other, was discovering that there is beef in the craft world. And that to me is because as someone who doesn't really craft, I just think of craft as being, you know, people do like they knit things and (laughs) And they glue things to paper, they glue things together, but there's beef in the craft world. And there's, and also actually on a more serious note, there's also when you kind of look into these, um, I guess, enclaves, there's racism in the crafting world. Mm. Of course, there's appropriation in the crafting world. And there's white women who are claiming as like cute craftiness practices that are actually really important to particular cultural groups. So yeah. once you kind of like I can make a funny joke about, oh, there's beef in the craft world. But then we can also reflect on the fact that everything that we do in the world is impacted by our posi- or, or, or has impact and also is Im- impacted by our position in society. And oftentimes people who have privilege in society are really shit in how they interact with each other um, and the choices that we make. So that's kind of deviating a little bit away from, from Twitter, but yeah, I guess just there, there will always be things that are true of humans, regardless of the mediums in which we express ourselves. And also there will always be ways in which we are bad to other people. Which brings me to your book. It was interesting. Well, for people that have not read how we love notes on a life, it, it is a personal memoir, right? And this is, I guess, an insight to you that people haven't had access, mm-hmm. access before through a product that you've, you, you've written or you've given yeah. out to the world, yeah? And yeah. in this book, we explore love with you. 
and we go through all sorts of different love, romantic love, platonic love, self-love, love Mm. as a mother, love from a mother, losing a mother, you know, Mm. all of these things. What I found so striking was how, well, first of all, it was beautifully written, so beautifully written and utterly captivating, couldn't put it down. And the description of what you went through with all these different relationships in your life resonated so deeply with me as if they were my own stories because they were so similar to things that I'd been through myself. It's funny because the book is is about some very specific circumstances to my Mm. life and obviously it details things that are unique to me but at the same time the experiences of love that I'm writing about are universal to everyone we can all relate to unrequited love we can all relate to the feeling of insecurity as an adolescent trying to make their way through the world and even figure out who they are feeling like they they won't ever have a particular kind of love but not really knowing what that love is that they want Um, you know many of us very sadly can relate to the death of a parent much too young and we can also relate to what it feels like to be a motherless or fatherless child who then goes on to have a child of our own and how we navigate those spaces and also just the kind of the grit and the grime of being human and alive and Mm. craving intimacy of all kinds whether or not that's romantic and physical or whether or not it's intellectual intimacy or the at the root of it and what I write about in the book is that to desire love is not so much to desire someone to have dinner with or to have companionship with or to like exist in your home with you because of course we also know that lots of people may have that kind of superficial on the surface looking romantic love and feel deeply alone Mm. because what we want from love is to be seen we want to be known and understood in the world and we want to feel somehow like our experience here as human beings has been recorded and not just by ourselves but by the the, the people who, who we choose to love. And what's so interesting about reading your book, for me anyway, but I know this will resonate across the board, is that feeling of being seen that we're all seeking was what I got from discovering how you discovered love and, and what you um found out through the experiences that you went through and what you felt and what you didn't Mm. feel and all those things. There were some specific, I want to call them characters, but they're real people in your life that really stood out for me. One was Roger. Yep. I think I've had two Rogers in my life. Um, Can we talk a little bit about him without ruining ruining the book? How would you describe Roger? Well, I don't think it even ruins the book to kind of outline what happened. I think that... no. And actually, it's probably good for people to have a bit of a warning because some of these things, I mean, this is the thing, is that before we talk about Roger, it strikes me that um, for a woman in particular to write a book about love, a memoir about love, and even when you say, oh, it's about all the different kinds of love that we have, there is an assumption, I think, and maybe I'm sensitive to this and maybe it's just because of my work as a feminist and Mm. my understanding of how the world works, I think that there is an assumption from some people that women writing about love is fluffy and, yeah. and silly and sort of like it can be nice and, and sweet and cute, but like essentially kind of a book of aphorisms, you know, love yourself. Of course, that's not what this book is about at all. It's about the messiness of love and about how as humans we can be broken by certain things and we can learn to put ourselves back together. Um, and those things, of course, are all universal experiences, as I said. So the chapter about Roger, I feel, is one that 
again, unique experience to me and yet so universal for mm. not just girls, but lots of children who are teetering on the brink of adulthood. It's a, it's a reflection on when I was 12 years old, my family moved from the Middle East where I grew up to England. And um, it was a very, it was a huge culture shock for me really, because I'd never, I hadn't been around what seemed to me to be unfettered access to adult behaviours that weren't monitored by people around you and that just were culturally acceptable because, mm. you know, even from a cultural standpoint, my life in the Middle East was, was very free and liberal in many ways, but they were dress codes. So that's just a one example of something specific. It was quite shocking to me in some way and also exciting and thrilling and titillating to land at 12 years old in a place where girls wore crop tops and tiny little shorts and smoked on street corners and and it was kind of at first very scary to me because I was 12 and I was a pretty young 12 when it you know I still played with my Barbie dolls and I think that's great like I'm not criticizing anyone who does that I was it was safe for me um and I was also had a lot of you know images around my body as so many young girls do and this all coincided with a lot of things that were happening in my life that paved the way for this man Roger who was an adult man who I worked for to there was he groomed me but I didn't you know I'll say to your listeners as I warn people in the book that it doesn't result in the worst thing that we can imagine and I think that it is important for people to know that a story is not about you hurtling towards some kind of like terribly voyeuristic destruction Mm. but also that these things often happen to girls too that we avoid we narrowly avoid things being done to us by adult men who should know better yeah. and who do know and who do know better. Yeah. You know what an interesting narrative for me, which made me stop reading for a few days while I processed it, was without going into the story too deeply, I had a Roger in my life and and you did do this a little bit in the book. I found myself still now go, oh no, no, he wasn't grooming me. He wasn't Mm. doing it on purpose. It was never going to lead anywhere. Mm. But that also doesn't make it okay. And I think that's quite a common story that we've all been through as well. This idea of, oh, no, it was never going to lead anywhere. It was always a bit of fun. It wasn't a conscious grooming, but you don't know. You're right. You don't know. know. No, you don't. That's the thing is that for many years, so I don't think it'll ruin the chapter to kind of talk a little bit about what happened. So Roger owned an ice cream shop in this seaside town that I lived in. And I was very drawn to the shop, not just because Roger was this cool kind of figure. Um, And actually like thinking about it now as a 40 year old woman, he was 35 at the time, but he was very grizzled and kind of, I would look at him now and just think, "Ugh, it is so grotesque that you surround yourself by all of these young girls. Like there's something wrong with you. Um, But at the time when you're 13 and my dad, was he'd he'd moved back to Oman to work there and my parents were together, but they weren't living, we weren't living all as one. My mum was very depressed as so many women in the 80s and 90s were depressed and undiagnosed and untreated and she slept a lot and I just was kind of not really monitored. Mm. And I went from having this very sheltered existence um, and being a child, being an actual child, to being in that weird ephemeral state between childhood and adolescence where no one was watching me or what I was doing no one was watching the self-harm that I was participating in by way of eating disorders I lost a lot of weight and the result of that was that people around me my family in particular praised me for Mm. it you know 
And so I felt this system of reward that when you perform correctly and when you make yourself attractive to other people, that you will be seen as acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I desperately wanted to work for Roger and his ice cream shop, not just because he was so cool, but because all the cool girls worked there. And they were also like, you know, I describe in the book their jingly jangly bracelets and the way that they would like push their hair behind their ears and always in a process of putting it up and down in their ponytails and their bra straps showing. And I mean, we all know what that like alluring girl is when we are yeah. a teenager. And also, the, I mean, if it wasn't a real story that was actually set in an ice cream shop, it's such an, <laughs> such an alluring setting as well, this sort of yeah. sweet, the sweetness of an ice cream store and everything that comes with it. Yeah. It's sort of added to the tale. It's a very innocent kind of thing to like eat ice cream. And yet Roger, the owner of this shop, as I reflect on now, really... I mean, again, like I'm doing that thing where you were saying before, I'm not going to outright accuse him of something because maybe nothing ever happened with any other girls. But he he cultivated a relationship with me in which he bought me alcohol. He treated me like an adult, which, of course, at 13 years old, I was desperate to be seen as. And he kept nudging towards this conclusion that involved you know, ultimately me, him taking me up to his apartment, which was above the shop while his wife was out and she'd had a, you know, baby, her sec- their second child. And he would confide in me, their marital woes and the fact that. Which in its, which in so itself is inappropriate. highly inappropriate. Yeah. So inappropriate. <laughs> Took me out to the pub and would buy me alcohol and talk to me about how his wife wouldn't sleep with him. And, um, and I felt trusted, you know, it, it, mm. it's grooming. Like I felt trusted. I felt. Yeah. I felt privileged to be in the glow of his attention, which is what so many of us fall prey to. Um, But the thing was, he was never going to force me to do it. And that's what I've spent all of these years trying to figure out or trying to kind of, I guess, come to some adult understanding of. Because for years, when he realised that I wasn't going to initiate or I wasn't going to pick up when we were finally alone in his flat and he sort of kind of challenged me really to become physical with him without saying it. And then realized, I guess, that I was out of, that I wasn't going to do what he wanted me to do. And he wasn't mm. going to force me to do it because that would be bad. Yeah. Then he said, Oh, we should go downstairs. And then I spent years feeling insecure about the fact that I, I, I betrayed myself, you know, I'd betrayed myself to him that I wasn't this grown up adult, sophisticated woman that he'd been treating me as and that I'd let him down so for years I was like Roger was the best boss I ever had he was so amazing and then it wasn't really until I was in my proper adulthood where I was reflecting on it where I was like that was really fucked up yeah and I was a child (laughs) and I was a child and I didn't have any parents paying any attention to me and I was vulnerable and like I say in the book nothing you know I kind of before we go up to the flat I, I do a little breathe out you know don't worry, nothing bad happens to me. This isn't going to end how you think it's going to end. But then I say nothing bad happens to lots of girls, but we remember it anyway. Yeah. And I feel like there's that space that I think that that story in particular will be so resonant with female readers because there is that space where we feel like unless the worst thing we've been told that can happen is done to us, it's not that bad. Yeah. We have no right to complain. 
Absolutely. And I mean, not to draw complete parallels, but I think this is where women in domestic violence situations where they're being emotionally abused instead of physically abused, try and sort of find reason in it, you know, oh, well, he never hit me. And that's what society tries to do as well. It's not that bad. He didn't hit you. He's not, it's not like he's doing this. I mean, if I were a 13 year old girl today who came out and said, my boss took me up to his flat and gave me a drink and then told me to come over and give him a hug. And then I gave him a hug and he was like, well, let's go downstairs. If I came out and said that against a pillar of the community, which he is in that town, we know what the reaction would be. Well, A, what were you doing up in his apartment when his wife wasn't there? Why were you drinking with him? You were a tease. Well, people might be thinking, what, what does that story have to do with love? But that's the thing is that love is often dark and dangerous. And I, I, I fancied myself not in love with Roger, but I was in love with how he made me feel about myself. And that can be really dangerous for us, particularly when we are vulnerable children and we are trying to figure out who we are in a world and we deserve to be protected. And I I compare him um, at the end of that chapter to two other adult men who I had similar kind of, you know, wide-eyed crushes on. My English teacher when I was 15 and a friend of my father's whose farm I stayed on with him and his family when I was 14. And he taught me to ride a horse and he taught me to drive a car. And, you know, he called me, he called me um, red for my hair. And I still probably have some like crush on him now to this day. But both of those men knew what the line was and they, yeah. and they didn't encourage the crush, but nor did they make me feel ashamed for it. They, they made it distinctly clear that I was a child and that they were adults and they were not going to cross a line and there was never any kind of private conversation between us. They always kept me at a distance without making me feel weird or ashamed about it. And I feel like that's what, you know, that's what's missing so often in these conversations is that, of course, young girls have crushes on older people, whether or not they're men or women. Of course we have crushes on adults. Of course we flirt with them. Of course we roll our skirts up around them and we toss our hair and we practice being grown-up women on these grown-ups who we want to desire us but the grown-ups have to know that that's a it's a practice and that they have to be the grown-ups in the situation and so often they just don't I mean one of the experiences I had I was 18 so I was an adult but I still don't think it makes it any better especially when it's in that it's the particular dynamic Mm. of boss and employee where it blurs the lines even more because At the end of the day, it's the inappropriateness of it, discussing the marriage, discussing the sex life of your wife with your employees, your young employees. It's just wrong, yeah. It leaves you with a lot of really complicated feelings because, you know, and this is what, um, and I'm not comparing myself to people who've been victimised by physical sexual abuse and the emotional torment that comes with that, but it does leave you with a complicated feeling of you liked some of it. Yeah. And and you did encourage some of it, which again does not make it okay. I want to talk about another character in the book. Um, little little bit of a lighter subject now, I guess. It it was the bad text. (laughs) I wondered if that would be the other one. I want to read a bit from the book if that's okay with you. It doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. Not at all. Just to kind of set the context up for people. The bad, well, do you want to explain the bad texter to people? Okay, so bad, bad texter is a, is a chapter later on in the book. It's, it occurs after I left my long-term relationship with the father of my child and I was kind of going on a dating whirlwind 
um, as many of us do when we break up from long-term relationships. And the bad texter is every man or woman, although I, I would argue in this case that there are some specifics to him being a man, every man you've begun, you've, you've started to date who you kind of feel maybe you will feel a little ambivalent to at the start, but who very quickly you fall into the magnetic hole of their personality and you you become subsumed by the tediousness of obsessive crushing. And the more you want them, the more they sense that you want them and the more they pull back and the less of the less of yourself you become and you, you, you forget who you even are because you're so constantly aware of how you're behaving around them and so terrified that you'll bore them or push them away that you can't help but do both of those things. And then ultimately at the end, when you kind of emerge from the, the tedium of this obsessive crushing and this obsessive love, you look around to see that everything's okay, that you've made it through the storm and it feels to you like, you've been battered by tides but yeah you're still standing <laughs> and you'll still always love them just a little bit yeah I and I've definitely got a bad text from my in my past but I feel like as we sort of near the end of that chapter and you're sort of coming to terms with the fact that what's happening here isn't of something we can classify as a relationship and mm. it needs to be defined and there's sort of these moments of you know, meeting in a hotel room and and thinking that it's about sex and then sex not happening. So what does that mean? And let's define this kind of thing. Mm. And needing answers, I guess. Yeah, you're wanting you're wanting so fiercely to define. It's that it's what my my friend Alice, who the book is dedicated to, it's what she calls the unburdening. You know, that you want to be unburdened by all of these fears, that you want to be free of the anxiety of questioning what's going on all the time that you just want to be able to have someone say yes I want you to be my girlfriend so you can breathe out and go finally yeah but but deep down I think you always know how that conversation's gonna go like you know you you don't have it which is why you you avoid it at all costs okay so I just want to read this little bit here because I've never felt more seen in my life do you think things would have been different I asked him if circumstances had been different I mean I don't know, he replied cautiously. If we had time together uninterrupted by work and life, then maybe we could have seen what was there. No, I said, throwing open the locked box that protected both my ego and my vulnerability. I mean, am I the kind of person that you'd want to be with? Oh, well, yes, he said with more enthusiasm. You're smart and funny. You're also a rat bag and I like that about you. And you actually have a trait that I think is rare in a lot of people and that most people wouldn't expect of you which is that you're willing to change your mind on things. I looked down at the tan bark and smiled. No, I thought to myself, you're still not listening. What I really want to know is, do you think I'm pretty? Now, Ah, I'm so glad you loved that bit because (laughs) I remember when it happened, like as a writer, you'll also appreciate this, um, that you experience things and yet, as you're experiencing them as a writer, the writer part of your brain is always like, must write that down. That's a really yeah. <laughs> good, that's a really good part of the story. It's a really good exchange or whatever. And as it was happening, I was feeling all of those sensations so strongly, but I was like, this is a fucking great scene. Well, it is a great scene. Um, and I resonated with it so much because I like to think of myself as a really smart, intelligent, mm-hmm. funny woman. And when I date guys, I want them to think I'm clever and all of those things. But deep, deep, deep down, All I want is for them to think that I'm pretty. Mm -hmm. And I think coming from you, such an 
uh, active feminist, I like to call myself a lazy feminist, mm-hmm. but as an active feminist, to, to, to see that that was okay to think that, to feel that, and that this is something that is so common mm. through, I mean, I'd like to say everyone, but I guess women, this idea of deep down, it doesn't matter how much you validate me. If you choose not to be with me, Mm. is it because I'm not pretty? Mm -hmm. Is that the reason? Well, and the thing is as well, you know, when you're writing memoir, sometimes you kind of fudge storyline, not storylines, you fudge timelines or you meld characters or you, Mm. you have to, um, uh, create a dialogue that you don't like some of the dialogue in the story. Of course, I don't remember it from when it happened 20 years ago. So you have to kind of create a narrative around it. That, yeah. that is, it's reflecting the, the sense of what happened. But that scene is verbatim because I remember when I went home and I was crying in the car about, you know, it sort of, it wasn't like racking sobs, but I was, so that happened after we, um, I cracked it out in one night because I was basically sending him a text saying, you don't respect me, blah, 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 blah. And it was the one thing that made him go, okay, let's meet tomorrow and, and talk about this. And that was when we decided to sort of officially call it. Yeah. Which of course I knew was happening and I knew was coming and I had to <laughs> resist that urge in me as I was turning up to just try and take it all back because anything was better than nothing at that point. Um, but I remember going home and, and making a point of writing it down. So it's basically verbatim that that happened. And I remember thinking as well and saying to my friend afterwards how funny it was that, you know, those essential truisms that you can be someone who is smart and funny and that someone who you respect and who you're sort of basically in love with in a weird, not in a non-realistic kind of way, but who you're, you are in lust with and desire, have Mm. so much desire for them, for them to say, Oh yeah, I love that you're smart and funny and you're a rat bag and all of these beautiful things that you would otherwise love to be described by someone who loves you. But when it comes, comes down to it, you're like, but is the reason that you don't want me because I'm not pretty enough? Is that it? So good. So, so good. I want to talk to you about the writing process and this idea, like you've just said about these verbatim conversations that are in there. Okay. So you've just admitted to me that a lot of them aren't necessarily verbatim. And of course that happens with um, memoir, but did you, did you journal growing up? Like what were you, what were you referring to when you're going back to these mm. intimate stories from childhood and your teen years? Because I can barely remember what happened mm. last week sometimes. Well, I did write diaries when I was a kid and oh my God, one of my biggest regrets is that when I was 19, I was so, I don't know, I guess ashamed of, who I was in those diaries. Not that I should have been ashamed, but I was terrified that someone would find them. Who would find my diaries? But I just was so, they were so raw and full of so Mm. much angst and so much self-hatred and self-loathing and also desire and lust in the ways that I'd written about other boys. And I'd sort of like practiced being sexy in the diaries too. Like I think one of them, maybe I'd written like an erotica scene or something like that. And I didn't really have much experience with even kissing, let alone sex, but um, I was, I, I felt overcome by this terror one day that somehow my family would stumble on these diaries. And so I took them all out and I burnt them all. Oh, no. And it's one of the biggest regrets. Please, if you're listening to this, do not burn your diaries. You will never be ashamed of the person that you were at 13, particularly not when you're 40, you would love to look back on that girl and what she was thinking. I wish I still mm. had them. I'm so sorry to you, little Clementine for doing that to you. So I did journal. I've also got an excellent memory for details. And I also started writing a blog when I was 25, where 
I think just even the practice of putting things into words means that you kind of like file them away somewhere in your brain. And some of the things like the chapter about Billy, um, I have to remember the name I gave her, Billy O'Reilly. Of course, it's not her real name. It's close though. Um, I, the text that I recount in the beginning, yes. those are verbatim, which is why yeah. there are some, you know, sort of grammatical errors in some of them, because I went back to our very first texts between each other. Billy is a, a dear friend of mine who I write about in the book, and she's really in a chapter about what happens when you make the decision to not make something romantic and how how beautiful and expansive the love that you can have for someone can be, because obviously we put place all of this primacy on romantic love and say that, well, that's the pinnacle. So anything outside of that is less than. But actually, when you have the choice between making something romantic, which it could have been with her, or choosing to close the door on that and preserving the relationship that will exist because you've said no to romance, you turn around and you see that there's this whole other structure of a house that you didn't know was there that you can explore, all of these different rooms and places that you can be together. And so that all of those exchanges were exactly as it happened. Billy was the other character I really resonated with, not so much from a gender perspective, but just this idea of mm. choosing choosing friendship over romantic love and 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 figuring out that there's actually a lot more longevity to it in my situation, but I guess in yours as well. Mm. Um, but also, yeah, all these different rooms that you're able to explore having not crossed that line. Well, she wrote me a song actually because she's a beautiful musician and performer and um songwriter and that's her job um and she wrote a song for me at the time called clementine and the it's in the book and the chorus goes clementine thank you for teaching me how to say no and you said no too and now there's a chance that i won't lose you yeah and it's funny actually because i wrote that chapter it was one of the hardest chapters to write not from an emotional perspective but because i'm balancing it with two stories which is the story of the the boy that i started dating at the time who really hated um and who it sort of, it, I kind of did to him possibly what the bad texter did to me. There's all this mirroring throughout, you know, the, the life is this merry dance where we, we switch partners and we, 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 we desire and we, we're in love triangles and I, I'm, I want her and she wants him and he wants me maybe or someone else completely. Um, and I found it so difficult to write structurally because the, the two stories are very intertwined, but they're also completely separate. And it was a way of trying to figure out as a writer how to not make them seem clunky. And, I, and I'm still not entirely sure that I pulled it off. It's the one, it's the chapter that I feel the most insecurity about because it was so structurally difficult to kind of keep the pace going. But I feel like what happened with me and Billy and her saying, you know, thank you for teaching me how to say no and you said no too and now there's a chance I won't lose you is ultimately what ended up happening with me and the bad texter because we're such wonderful friends now and I think that he he has lots of similarities to me in terms of how you know making something romantic can feel quite constraining and and quite terrifying in some respects and it causes you to pull away and I do feel very confident and safe in the knowledge now that actually he does love having me in his life, but for us to have the relationship that we have now, we needed to say no to romance. I think you pulled off the Billy chapter really well. Oh, thank I you. Think. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate no, I that. Thought it, I thought it was great. Um, 
it was really, it flowed really beautifully. It was really easy to get through. There was a moment, I can't remember his name. Did you give him a name? No, I just The guy that you were dating? I just called him the editor. There was a moment where you had made the decision that you just went into it anymore and you'd gone over to his house and he'd opened the door Mm. with this excitement for seeing you where you'd already checked out but he didn't know he didn't have conscious you know knowing of this and that moment you know of seeing someone who's still so in love with you I'll say in love I don't know if he was um when you know that there is absolutely no future but you aren't able to say it yet so they're still leading you know their own narrative it it was heartbreaking to read because I've been him Mm -hmm. I've been you I mean we all have and um yeah it was just really resonant I feel like with the exception hopefully of Roger we've all been almost every character in this book and, yeah. and I've certainly, I mean, you can clearly see throughout the book that I've been every single one of those people who broke my heart. I've broken someone else's heart or I've like changed my mind or I think mean, that scene in particular. So it's a, it's a very quick turnaround where I, I, I really felt like something, it felt ordained, you know, that I met this guy ostensibly for a work meeting and it, it did feel very fateful and it was, you know, going back to what Alice says about the unburdening, it, I didn't feel like I needed to question how he felt about me. I mean, it was a very rapid sort of falling into this thing with this person. And mm. I don't, I can't remember if I put this in the book actually, but he was well within his rights to think that we were on the same page because I remember saying to him that when we had our first kiss and it was beautiful, it was, it's still, still one of the best first dates of my life going to the, the beach that day and you know, connecting with someone and I, I sort of describe us bobbing in the water and we haven't even really touched at this point or even acknowledged necessarily, I think that something will happen, but that our feet brushed against each other in the water and it was the most electric thing. And then we had our first kiss a few days, oh no, the next day. And it sort of happened so beautifully and in a, in a kind of very natural and yet also perfectly scripted way. The, exactly the kind of first kiss that you crave when you're watching movies that have perfect first kisses. Mm. And I said to him, I think we're going to fall in love with each other. And he said, I think we are too. And then I fucking broke his heart. Oh, Was there, I think there was a moment in the book where you said that you had spoken to Will, was it, on Facebook and mm. let him know that he was going to be featuring in the book and did he want to read a little bit about what was going to be written is that right yeah so this is this is back in the roger chapter um will again another fake name and i find i don't know how you feel about this but i find coming up with fake names for people so stressful um because you don't want them yeah you don't want them to be too generic because then they feel very generic but you also don't want them to be too like i spoke to phineas you know Right. I always try and keep the same. I probably shouldn't reveal this to everybody, but I try and keep the same first letter. So it's it's very oh, similar yeah. in their name. But the last book I wrote, which was actually also about love, it was a dating and relationship book. I actually went through Tinder and just randomly picked guys' names. That's very clever. That's very yeah. clever. Although, I mean, not at all disagreeing with that, but I'm just curious what you feel as a writer as well, that once you do give your character a name, whether or not it's a character based on a real person or not, you feel this enormous I don't really write fiction but I can I can appreciate that for fiction writers they feel an enormous responsibility to these characters that they've assembled on the page and you don't want to like put your book out into the world and and ever have a, have a niggling feeling that the name you've given them is wrong for them 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, uh, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And definitely when it comes to fiction. But I think, I mean, the thing that I battled with the most, and I wonder if you did with this as well, because you've got a few villains in your book, is when you give your villains a name and then mm. there's all these people in the world you know like the poor karens out there in yeah. the world it's like that they're automatically associated with this character that you've created simply because of the name they were given at birth which is unfortunate yeah. for the rogers of the world right well <laughs> yeah i mean roger i always i also structurally i guess try and keep the same number of syllables um oh. I try and keep the same kind of vibe about the name yeah, so yeah i don't yeah. think that this will it, it's not it's not going to hurt anyone's feelings to say that Will's real name in real life is Ben. And I feel like Will and Ben are a pretty, you know, like that's a comparable kind of name. Sorry, what I wanted to ask you about Will was because you you told him he was going to be in the book. Did you do this with every, I mean, not Roger, obviously, but did did you do this with most people, like get permission? Yeah, it's a tricky one because um, I don't know that I agree necessarily that a writer always needs to get permission but no I don't yeah it's it, it's a it's a politeness I suppose it's a politeness and I think it's the relationship that you currently yeah. have with them that determines how you use them I mean, use them use their story the thing with Will was that I wasn't asking his permission um, Will is a boy who I had a huge crush on when I was at the same time that this Roger and this the Sweeties chapter was happening I had this huge crush on Will, very age appropriate. Um, he was like probably two years older than me. And he was, he was part of this. It's sort of the way that it's written is kind of hinting at this, all of us teetering on the edge of adulthood. You know, we used to go to, mm. we were 13, 14, 15 years old, but we'd go and hang out in the park and drink cans of beer together and smoke cigarettes. And of course, me and my friend Bree, whose real name is Anna, we're not friends anymore, but we're not, not friends either. She was just a character in my life at the time. Yeah. So Bree and I would go and sit there on the periphery of this group kind of being tolerated or it felt to me at the time being tolerated but not really being considered a core central part of it. Um, And there was this one particular night where we all went up to the cliffs. It was a seaside town and we went up to the cliffs. It was just sort of hovering towards the beginning of summer but it was quite chilly on the cliffs. And I was wearing, I think, you know, I I describe it in the book as being wearing it. I'd recently lost a lot of weight and I was like, I'm going to wear crop tops and I'm going to dress the way that I see all of these beautiful, pretty, jingly, jangly bracelet girls around me dressing. And I'll always feel uncomfortable because I feel like it won't, it's not really me. They'll know that it's not really me, but I'm going to try and do it. You're trying on different personas when you're young, aren't you? And I was sitting there on the periphery of this group terrified really to say anything because I didn't want them to know how uncool I was and also that deer in the headlights thing of which sort of later came up with the bad texture that the more you love someone the more you're afraid to really say who you are because you don't want Mm. them to be like ugh. um so I was sitting there not really saying anything and I was shivering and my teeth were chattering and Will was sitting next to me and he sort of quietly said to me are you cold and I said no I'm I'm fine and I just I still remember it now 
you know, you have those golden moments when you're young and you, the, the kinds of things that if you're a filmmaker, you could render it so beautifully. Yeah. He popped the cigarette, this 15-year-old boy, popped the cigarette into the corner of his mouth, didn't say anything, and just like pulled his black Adidas tracksuit jacket off with the three straps, the, you know, the, the classic kind of Adidas zip up, pulled it off and passed it to me and said, here, put this on. And I, I sort of shrugged it onto my shoulders. And I hadn't really kind of thought too much of, about him before then, but, of course, the, I was instantly clapped by the thunderbolt of love. And I could smell him in the jacket and I describe it in the book as being, you know, that sort of musk of 15-year-old boy, a little bit of tobacco mm. smoke and a little bit of armpit musk and how links. and a little bit of links, <laughs> yeah. whatever the equivalent was in England at the time. And I just remember feeling like I am in love. Um, and I, and he, I sensed that he was wanting me to say something, but I was so terrified that I would say something and he'd realise I was boring. So I just kind of kept quiet. And thought, well, he's going to figure I'm I'm boring and I've got nothing to say anyway. Yeah. And um, I didn't really have all that much to do with him beyond that. We never really spoke except for the one time where Bree had told everyone that I liked him and I kind of passed him in the street with his best friend who mocked me for it. But I remember him telling his best friend to shut up and looked at me and smiled. And I just always thought he was really cool. You know, he was just a really nice boy. And so I wrote to him when I was writing this chapter and I said to him, you won't remember me at all, but we went to school together briefly and we had, we shared this moment and I've written about it in my book. I didn't ask him for, for permission. I said, I've written about it in my book and I've included the excerpt below. And I'm doing this because I just think that sometimes it's nice for other people to share memories of us when we were kids, things that we may not have known about ourselves. And, and I've carried these memories of you and I'm giving them back to you now. And I just, I thought you were a really nice boy and I, I hope you've had a really nice life. And he wrote back to me a few days later and he said, you're right, this message has shocked me and come out of the book and I've, and I've had to have to like take a couple of days to really think about it. Um, and he said, I do remember you and I remember that night really well. I was really intrigued by you. You were a breath of fresh air and you seemed to think about the world in ways that other people weren't at the time, although you were very quiet. And I then was like, well, now it's my turn to be shocked because I felt so invisible and unseen mm. when I was a child. And I, it would never have even occurred to me that this golden boy who I, I just had such the, this pure love for had ever even noticed me or yeah. would even remember me and would be doing to me the exact same thing that I thought I was doing for him, which was presenting a memory of who you were back to you and, and having preserved it for 30 years yeah it's so beautiful because I think especially as children and teenagers we have all of these invisible fantasies over and over and over again about the people we're interacting with and at no point do we ever stop to contemplate that perhaps people are having invisible fantasies mm. about us mm. and and to think like I I would have loved to have been Ben Will and had someone write to me and be like, oh, by the way, you know, when you were 14 years old, this happened. Um, so that, I mean, that's such a beautiful gift that you gave him and then that he was able to give you in return. But not just give me. One of the things that I thought about a lot while writing this book was the existence of so many of our past selves at you know, it was playing with time and the notion of linear time and, and where we exist in the world. I don't think of 
13-year-old B, 13-year-old me as being, I mean, she's me and she's not me. She's yeah. a part of me, but she exists separately because she doesn't know all of the things that I know at 40, but also she's braving things at 13 that I don't have to deal with anymore. And mm-hmm. so I look back at her and I say this in that chapter as well, and I think you feel so invisible right now and you feel like no one cares and you are wrestling with so many different things and insecurities. But one day someone you love is going to give you a gift and that is that they're going to tell you that they saw you and they were intrigued by you and they thought you were a breath of fresh air and you're going to have that and you don't know it yet. You don't know that's 30 years in the making, but one day you're going to have that. And it's made me feel so writing this book and I guess putting these stories from different times in my life down on the page where, you know, and as women in particular, I mean, all all people feel this way, but women have a particularly negative way of speaking about ourselves and we can, you know, direct the most horrible cruelties to who we are now and to who we were. And we make jokes about how dorky we were and we make, we laugh at, you know, the silly things we wore But actually, when you think about yourself as being a series of infinite moments in time, it becomes a lot harder to look at that 13-year-old girl and say, what a loser you were. You love that 13-year-old girl. When you think of her as being you but not you, you can be so much more kind towards her and and who you were. And it's it's very healing in a way. And I I Mm. hope that that's one of the things that people take away from this book as well is that if you think of yourself in those terms you can heal parts of yourself that you didn't know were broken yeah and I think also it gives you the ability to have the compassion for yourselves in the present moment for for yourself in the present moment Mm. knowing that you know at Mm. 60 or 70 or 80 looking back at 40 year old you and thinking oh god I wish I had you know I, I wish I was softer with myself. I wish I was kinder and more gentle. Mm. You know, it gives you that same sort of perspective. You can kind of, I don't know, I mean, this might be a little bit too kind of woo-woo or metaphysical for people, but it, it works for me as a practice is that if you, if you think of yourself now at 40 sending messages back to your child self and saying, you're amazing, you, you are doing so well, I love you so much, you can also tune in very carefully and listen to the person at 60 who you become or God willing the person at 80 who you live to be sending you those same messages mm. you're doing a great job mama keep going I love you and I'm proud of you yeah makes you want to cry yeah. talking about it it's no, all I know. very good self-talk yeah but also 40 year old you telling 40 year old you those yeah. same things you know we yeah. can do that now um you have been so generous with your time I want to ask you a few questions just to finish up if that's okay I really appreciate your time it's been so nice to talk to you it's it's really wonderful to talk to people who care about books and about writing yeah. to talk about <laughs> the writing so I've I've really loved it yeah it is it is such a process and I think until you've been through the trenches a few times with it. Um, mm. Yeah, it's hard to kind of get the right angle with the question. Well, just, and just, just very quickly, I'll say as well for people who are writers that it's, you know, it's so nice to have a book written, obviously, and to feel like it's, it's, as, it's the best that you could have made it. I mean, there's maybe things that later on you'd be like, I wish that I'd changed this, but I feel really proud of this book. But there is 
the moment while you're writing the book where you just wrestle with so much self-hatred and self-doubt and it's messy and you think, why on earth did I start to do this? And you can't conceive of a moment when the book will be finished. But if you just keep plugging away, the metaphor that I often use is that it's like when you decide to clean your room mm. um, and you you think at the first you're like, I'm going to rearrange my room or I'm going to clean out my cupboards and I'm going to feel so good at the end of this. And you start doing it and you're like, oh, you've got some great music playing and you've got a plan and then you're like, this is going so well. You take a little bit of a break. And then at some point you look at your room and it's a bomb site and you have, you've moved the bed somewhere that it's obviously not going to work there and you've got all of your clothes spread out all over the place. And you're like, why did I decide to do this? This was a terrible decision. What, what possibly motivated me? And you feel so suffocated by the weight of knowing that it's it's a lot of hard yakka at this point mm. and but you, you keep doing it you keep plugging away until eventually you get to the point where you're like it looks pretty good now it looks pretty good and that's almost the hardest part of the book where you're like it looks pretty good realistically I know in my heart of hearts that it needs more tightening and it needs a little bit it needs another draft and they've probably got another month of work on it could I get away with just doing this just leaving like a, a messy drawer no you've got to get rid of the messy drawer and once you finish it you're like ah, I can sit in my room and I can drink a cup of tea now and I can relax and it all <laughs> everything is where it should be yeah except you don't have a thousand strangers walking through and making yeah. judgment on how clean your yeah. room is exactly Re- reviewing you in the paper yeah <laughs> All right, these are some rapid-fire questions. Um, No one answers them in a rapid-fire manner, but do your best. See how you go. First question. So this is taking you away from writer and into reader. Fiction or nonfiction? Um, Fiction generally, but I've been reading more nonfiction lately. Okay. Favourite book growing up? Circle of Friends. Ah, good one. Well, I would say that that was probably later adolescence. Before that, it was... um, Pride and Prejudice, really, I know that it's a very kind of classic answer, but Pride and Prejudice. Classic book. Oh, <laughs> classic book. And that was actually the thing that made me fall in love with my English teacher. So very close ah, to my heart. But- that's probably that's probably a, um, a very uh, familiar story for many people, I would yeah. say. Circle of Friends uh, is my warm hug book. Beautiful. Um, what's the book that changed your life? The Glad Shout by Alice Robinson. And the answer to Ooh. that is a little... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll expand on it just quickly. And that is that yeah, Alice, do. Alice Robinson is uh, the Alice that the book is dedicated to, who is mentioned all throughout my book. And The Glad Shout is not just a brilliant book. It, re- it won the Readings Prize for Fiction in 2019. It's an amazing look at a sort of near future dystopian Melbourne where climate change has basically destroyed our way of living. But it also looks at something that so much dystopian fiction doesn't look at, which is who takes care of the children during Mm. a climate crisis and why is the answer always women? Um, And the reason that that book changed my life is because that was how I met Alice because she asked me to launch the book for her. And I, I sort of came to it kind of hesitantly because I, I wasn't, Alice has a particular way of being where if she wants to make you her friend, you will become her friend. And I was a little kind of wary of that. Um, and I read this book and I was like, this book is fucking amazing. And this woman is a genius writer. And I launched her book and, and fell in love with her. And we became more than she's one of my soulmates. And so it changed my life. She's in my life now. 
What's the book that you buy other people? I, I don't have a singular answer for that, but I would say that I buy people funny books. Uh, who's your favourite author? Tricky question, but do you have that one? That is a tricky question. I don't know if I can answer it. Um, I love the writing of Zadie Smith. Yeah, um, oh, I love Zadie Smith. Yeah, she's she's incredible. White Teeth was mm. just such a phenomenal book to read when you're in your 20s. What are you currently reading? I'm reading How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. It, he's oh. a Japanese-Hawaiian writer. Um, yeah. And it's it's a, it's a kind of a speculative fiction. It's about to come out through Bloomsbury. I got an arc for it. And it's kind of, he wrote it before the pandemic, but it's very reflective of a pandemic basically. It spans generations and it essentially looks at what happens when a plague is unleashed on the oh, world wow. and how people how people respond over generations. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And you're enjoying it? Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I, I really enjoy speculative fiction. Well, call me crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last question, what, what's next? What's your next read after this one? Yeah, I just bought Otessa Mogdesh's new book. I think it came out last year. Is that how you say her last name? Moshveg, sorry. Otessa Moshveg's new book. Um, because I loved my year of rest and relaxation and Eileen is just also incredible. And I think that this one is called Death in Her Hands. So that's the one that I've got lined up next. She's such a she's such a uh, kind of dark and wild writer. You know, I love that. I love authors, particularly women authors who write really like grotesque female characters and yeah. women who make like abominable choices and one of the things I loved about Eileen as well is that it's so visceral. You know, she, Eileen is this kind of grotesque character who works, it's set in the 1950s and she works in a women's, uh, no, sorry, she works in a prison, but she's, she's, a, she's an observer of people and she lives with this, she lives with her alcoholic father and everything's really visceral in the way that she describes things. Like the character of Eileen loves to like wear her underwear for a few days and like, you know scratch her vagina and scratch her vulva I should say and then like touch the other co colleagues at the prison with it you know like the people who undermine her and I yeah. just really love that kind of yeah grotesque nature yeah and it's really interesting reading books where it's difficult to connect to a character because they are outwardly grotesque or there's mm. something in them that morally it's not okay to be connecting with them and you connect with them anyway you know like mm. when you watch a tv series like did you ever watch the fall oh yeah yeah yeah. you know you're kind of batting for him and he's just a grotesque human and, <laughs> and you really should he's a serial killer and you shouldn't be but you're kind of on his side and it's that kind of to and fro yeah with with characters in books where it can be the same I um I read another book what was it Oh, Maggie's Going Nowhere by Rosie Hartley, I think. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that? I, haven't, I haven't read it. I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Okay, so Maggie is just, you know, she's just an abomination of a human and you really shouldn't like her, mm. but you just can't help it. You can't help. And I just, yeah, I just think it's a really great way for us to kind of shift perspective on mm. the way that we read because a lot of the time we want to be the protagonist in the book mm. well I, I, I felt the same way reading um notes on a scandal by zoe heller you know that the narrator of that is yeah just so vile in so many ways but she's also she's a very sympathetic person as well because she's 
kind of lonely and uh, untouched. And there's this scene in the book and um, Judy Dench plays her in the movie and she renders it so well where she talks about, you know, that people who are untouched for years, well, people who, who know what it feels like to be touched, you know, that the way that this new teacher who comes into the school who she's kind of obsessed with, who will never worry about a lack of human touch. But she says, when you haven't known touch for years, they won't understand how even something as simple as the bus driver brushing his fingers against his, your hand as you pass him your money can thrill you for days. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's funny, in the first lockdown, you're in Melbourne, aren't you? Yeah. So you've been in like a bazillion lockdowns. But yeah. like the earliest Sydney lockdown we had, I was not in Sydney, but New South Wales lockdown, I was single at that time and I do remember the first time I lived on my own. So there was a lot of, you know, not hugging people or touching Mm. people. And I remember the first time I went and saw my osteo Mm. (laughs) after and just feeling someone's touch on my shoulder. Mm. It just, yeah, it was this sort of like feeling that because we'd never been separated in that way before. We'd never had to you know, mm. experience loneliness or, 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 or lack of physical touch mm. in that way before the pandemic had first hit. And I do, I do remember that first moment and mm. thinking, you know, the scandal of it. Oh, yeah. Of it. Well, yeah. you know, we sort of all talked at the time about how it was very Austin-esque, you know, mentioning Jane Austen before that yeah. now you'd go for strolls with people and you'd get a little bit of a thrill if you, if your hands accidentally brushed (laughs) and everything's covered up and you sort of accept people for a a promenade around the lake. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Clementine Ford on Talk Wordy to me. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. It's so nice, as I said, to talk to people about books and about reading, but also to talk to someone like you who's read the book and taken so much away from mm. it it's um it's fantastic it's um it's really nice to see the book through someone else's eyes so thank you so much for your time and for inviting me on you're welcome so the book's called how we love notes on a life and it's available in all good bookstores yeah it's available in all good bookstores um please where possible shop independent and you know respect your local booksellers If you enjoyed that episode of Talk Wordy to Me with Clementine Ford, make sure you share it with your friends. You can do so by taking a screenshot on your phone and sharing it to your Instagram stories. You can tag me at Jordana Levine and tag Clementine at Clementine underscore Ford. In Friday's bonus episode, we're talking about love. So Clementine's book, How We Love, was a beautiful tell-all memoir. I'm going to throw a few different kind of books at you, but they'll all be nonfiction. They're all about love. I'm excited to share them. Cannot wait. Make sure you're subscribed so you know when Friday's episode drops. Until then, I'm Jordana Levine, and you've been listening to Talk Wordy to Me. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.